Welcome to City Life Church, and this is our podcast. This is Pastor Dave Diefendorf, and we are so honored to have you join us today. Our passion is to help you discover who God is, grow in the likeness of Jesus, and lead well in this generation. I hope in this message, God will meet you where you're at and take you to the next level in your connection with Him and His kingdom. Enjoy the message. Come on now. Amen. How are you guys doing this morning? Great. Well, we are going to dive in uh, to Galatians starting in the middle of chapter 1. Last week we started a brand new series looking at the book of Galatians and just kind of taking a chunk at a time and walking through it and seeing what the issues were of Paul's day. Why did he write this uh, letter to the churches of Galatia? Uh, Paul had, uh, in his first missionary journey, uh, he traveled um, and uh, he ministered to uh, four different cities in southern Galatia, which is modern-day Turkey. And uh, this is his letter back to those churches that he established. Uh, There were some issues going on. Uh, There were a group called the Judaizers. These were people that had grown up Jewish and had become followers of Jesus. And they had an understanding that, uh, of course, our Messiah is Jewish. And so, therefore, uh, Jesus would actually lead us to, if we're following him, he would lead us to a life of following the law, following the Mosaic law. Paul said uh, that that's actually not the gospel. You're adding to it. And so there's a little debate as to these kind of Paul against these Judaizers. So we kind of took a look at uh, uh, the beginning of the letter last week, and he dove right in. Uh, kind of right, gets right focused and uh, uh, just dives right into the letter. So it comes on really strong. Uh, but we're going to pick up um, in verse 11 today of chapter 1. And this is when Paul begins kind of defending his apostleship. Because his, uh, they were accusing him of being a second class apostle. Um, and uh, so yeah, that's what we're going to get into. Let me pray before we dive in. Lord God, thank you so much for your word. God, we're all in different places with you, but God, I pray that your Holy Spirit would illuminate and enliven your word to us. God, speak to us where we're at, and let us be uh, knowledgeable of you. Let us be knowledgeable of ourselves, and Lord, equip us to be your people in this hour. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, we're going to dive right in. Uh, Galatians 1, verse 11. Paul says this, For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. Nor did I receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through revelation of Jesus Christ. Paul's moving to this next major section of the epistle in which he defends his right to preach the gospel of grace and liberty. He must clearly vindicate his apostleship before he can kind of vindicate his message. And so before he kind of gets into... Uh, The heat, which we'll get into kind of at the end of uh, chapter 2 and definitely next week in chapter 3 and 4. But he's just setting this up. He's setting up his his apostleship. The idea of this passage is let me make this perfectly clear. He wants to leave no doubt that the gospel uh, that he preached to them was not made by man, nor was it formulated by man. Um, There is just no mixture of human wisdom, he attests. Um, I, he said, I didn't invent it nor alter it. It's not according to a human standard, and it's not even in harmony uh, with the ideas of men. 
Human wisdom would not come up with this message, Paul's saying. Humans would not come up with this. The Judaizers said Paul perverted the gospel by omitting the law of Moses. In reality, the Judaizers uh, perverted the gospel by adding legalism. You've got to obey these rules if you're really a follower of Jesus. Paul was saying, man, I'm not a second-hander on this. I'm not a Johnny-come-lately to the apostolic band. I'm a part of this apostolic leadership that God has established here. And uh, what was interesting is uh, Paul's reception of the gospel came from Jesus. Uh, on his walk to Damascus, Paul, who had been persecuting the church, has a powerful encounter with Jesus. He shows up, says, Paul, why are you persecuting me? He has this powerful uh, conversion experience. And then he says he goes away. And he goes away to Arabia. Uh, if you look at the life of Elijah, Elijah was a prophet in the Old Testament. And, and uh, he came out strong, uh, came against uh, Jezebel and Ahab. And then uh, kind of some, he, Elijah, kind of went away to Arabia. And Arabia, in Arabia, uh, he says that they go kind of Mount Sinai. Elijah goes to Mount Sinai and he's in, he's on the mountain and he hears God's voice. Not in the lightning or in the thunder, but in the still small whisper. And uh, it seems that Paul kind of follows the same type footsteps of Elijah. Uh, Paul has this encounter with Jesus and then he goes away to Arabia. And, it's, and he attests that that was when God gave me this gospel. Um, but this was in stark contrast to the Judaizers. The Judaizers didn't get their gospel actually from the scriptures. Uh, actually, they received their religious instruction from the rabbis. The rabbis were their authority. Most Jews didn't actually read the scriptures. Instead, they used human interpretations of scripture as their religious authority and guide. So many of their traditions not only were not taught in the scriptures, but they also contradicted it. And in my heart, I'm just like, God, may it never be for us. May we never rely on a guy up on stage reading the word yourself. Amen? Come on now. Hey. All right, so we get to chapter 2. And chapter 2 kind of shifts Paul's argument. There's a connection, of course. Paul is still speaking of his apostolic authority. But now, he wants to demonstrate the essential unity existing between himself and the twelve apostles, whereas in chapter 1 his focus was establishing his independence from them. Like, I didn't get my gospel from the other apostles, I got it directly from Christ. Paul had five total visits in his lifetime to Jerusalem, and uh, many people think that the period that he's talking about here in chapter 2 uh, was his second missionary journey, or second journey to uh, Jerusalem, where he met the apostles face to face. Other interpreters, other really good interpreters of the scriptures would say that in Galatians chapter 2, that Paul is on his third missionary journey, which is the Council of Jerusalem. Uh, so there's kind of debate as to where, what trip this was that Paul talks about, but he testifies that he's been face-to-face -face with the apostles. In Galatians 2, chapter 9, it's, or, uh, chapter 2, verse 9, there we go. It says, when James and Caiaphas and John... Who seemed to be pillars and perceived the grace that was given to me. They gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me. That we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Paul was called by God. He had a conviction that he was called by God to minister to the Gentiles. Whereas these original apostles, Peter, 
James, they seem to have a ministry just to Jews only, to the circumcised. And so this, this, this word grace that kind of Paul drops, the grace given to me, I just wanted to kind of take a moment and comment on this beautiful word called grace. Grace is not simply leniency when we have sinned. Grace is an enabling gift of God not to sin. Grace is power, not just pardon. Paul talks about grace in a multitude of different ways. He calls it glorious. God's glorious grace. He calls it abundant. He calls it rich. He calls it manifold, which is many-sided, multicolored grace. He calls it also sufficient. That God gives us sufficient grace. There's enough. There is never a shortage of God's grace. And that, not, that grace is not only but was bestowed upon Paul, but that same enabling, supporting, sufficient grace is given to you and me. Living in and through the grace of God is right before us to be rested in. Amen? His grace. All right, anyway, back to Paul. Just wanted to comment on grace. Love that. All right. But it does seem to be a theme throughout this book. Uh, okay, so back to Paul. Uh, the apostles realized that Paul and Barnabas represented not a competing message, but actually a complementary one. Peter had been sent to the or Peter had sent to, to the Jews. Paul had been sent to the Gentiles. Their messages don't contradict one another. They actually complement one another. Uh, both ministries had clear evidence of God's miraculous confirmation, and it was clear that God had shown favor to each of these two men. The only solution was to view the situation from God's perspective. Paul and Peter represented unity and diversity in the body of Christ. So, Paul continues the defense of his apostolic credentials uh, by reporting his even exercise of authority and one occasion of even over Peter, whom most believers in the early church considered to be a preeminent apostle. And Paul didn't hesitate to correct him. When he was out of line with the truth. So we pick up this. And he, again he's defending his apostleship. But then he brings up this one story. Of his encounter with Peter in Antioch. And it's pretty cool. Alright. So uh, Galatians 2. Verse 11. But when Caiaphas came to Antioch. Peter. I opposed him to his face. Because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James. He was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came in, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party, fearing these Jews of, uh, that had been, come from James. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Caiaphas before them all, If you, through a Jew, though a Jew, Live like a Gentile and not a Jew. How can you force the Gentiles to live like the Jews? So here's this uh, dinner party. They were eating a meal together. And in the church in Antioch, it was very common for Gentiles and Jews to be dining together. Why was this important? Well, this, this, this Paul, this young leader in the church there, it had been completely the custom that Jewish and Christians uh, Jewish and Gentile Christians would dine together. But he's saying, man, in the kingdom of God, there's no second class citizens. Eating with people is one of the most powerful symbols of association. Just as uh, circumcision is a symbol that speaks to family identity, so is the table fellowship. 
So it was eating a meal with people. Paul's confrontation is direct and to the point. Peter, you've been living like a Gentile, making no distinction between Jews and non-Jews. How can you now insist, as your behavior is insisting, on Gentiles becoming Jews in order to become a part of the inner circle of God's people? The real Peter knew and knows in his bones that in Jesus the Messiah, God had created one brand new family making no distinction between Jews and Gentiles. Peter knew this, but, but he had been giving in to this duplicity, this hypocrisy, you could say. And so, then, just as Peter walked on water but looked down at the waves around his feet, something happened that caused him to sink in this moment that Paul is mentioning. Certain persons had arrived from James and his Jewish respectability reared its ugly head and Peter separated himself from the Gentile Christians. Peter was raised. And then sometimes it's like, well, why did Peter do that? It's like, well, that seems silly. Why the big deal? It's really hard for us to comprehend. But ever since he was a young child, Peter was raised with viewing Gentiles as second class. Second class. They don't have the law. They are sinners. And so for, to, for a Jew, they were raised with first class, second class lenses. However, Jesus seemed to level the playing field. And he leveled everyone as equals. Everyone in Christ, whether Jew or Gentile, is now first class, equal co-heirs and united in Christ, made in his image. It seems humanity is prone to second classing people. I know you probably would never ever struggle with this, but uh, it seems like today uh, it's so common to second class people. Oh man, you're, you don't line up with the views that I think men second class. We can kind of second class people in our minds. We can kind of say, oh, you're of this persuasion, second class. Oh, you kind of have these ideas, second class. And our culture kind of perpetuates that because they love that when that happens. But in the kingdom of God, Paul's cry echoes through the ages to declare not in the kingdom of God. That's how the world functions. That's not how it functions in the kingdom of God. Amen? Amen? So we all come broken sinners, unable to live rightly to the same cross of Christ in whom we find redemption, whether Jew or Gentile. So Paul urges them not to forget that being made right with God is by faith in Christ, not earning your salvation or wholeness through law-keeping. Let's keep going. Galatians 2.15, Paul says this, We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. He was probably using that as a, uh, illuminating what's going on in their mind. Not saying that Gentiles are second, but it says, We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we have also believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because the works of the law, no one can be justified. But if, in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Absolutely not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. Man, 
kind of packed, and it's a little hard to untangle what Paul is just saying, just said. But recognize that he's very emotional in writing this letter. He's seeing the people that he invested his life in that started their walk with Christ with this pure gospel is now being perverted. It's like a young child being perverted with the ways of the world. There's just like this heart of justice to say, man, let it never be. And that's Paul's heart to these people. Uh, in this little section of Galatians 2.15, we are introduced to some tremendous terms that Paul continually uses, not just in this letter, but in all, a lot of his letters. For example, we run into this word called pistis, or faith, uh, which becomes such a prominent word in the vocabulary of Paul, living by faith. There's another word that he uses over and over, and that's the word nomos, which translates law. That's another prominent word. But above and beyond faith and the law, we run into another word that becomes a cardinal word, not only in Christianity, but in Paul's mind and heart and in his writing. And that's the word justification. We don't really hear it much anymore. Uh, it seems to be a heavy, you know, big theological word. Uh, ah, I don't really know about justification. But what is it? It's really important. Actually, so important that one cannot understand following Christ if you don't understand justification. So the great doctrine of justification by faith alone is introduced in the context of uh, Paul's rebuke to Peter because he's the reason he rebukes him. Because this is the reason he rebukes him. He's saying, Peter, I'm rebuking you because you're violating the cardinal doctrine of Christianity. By what you're doing, you're condoning legalism. You're condoning a faith plus law system. Justification is a term that was originally used uh, forensically of a judge declaring an accused person not guilty and right before the law. It's the opposite of declaring somebody guilty. Um, throughout Scripture, justification refers to God declaring the sinner to be guiltless on the basis of their faith in God. It's the free and gracious act by which God declares a sinner right with himself, forgiving, pardoning, restoring, and accepting him or her on the basis of nothing but trust in the person and work of Jesus Christ. You could say this, and kind of to define justification. It is the good news that sinful men and women can be brought into acceptance of God, not because of their works, but simply through faith and a personal trust in Jesus Christ. That is the doctrine of justification. The opponents of this message of grace argue that if you weren't under the law, then basically you were just free to sin. That was their understanding. If you don't have the law, then you're just condoning people's just rampant sin behavior. They reason that if people could, could believe in God, Christ, but then live as they wanted, and by their sinful actions make Christ a promoter of sin, Paul answers their accusation with an emphatic, absolutely no. Grace leads to freedom from sin's slavery to obey God, not as a license to disobey Him. And we'll get into a little bit of what does liberty and freedom mean biblically next week, because it's maybe a little bit different than how we use those terms today. All right, so the, we're gonna we're gonna we're land in this chapter here, coming to some pretty powerful stuff. Galatians two, verse nineteen, Paul says, "For when I tried to keep the law, it condemned me. So I died to the law." 
I stopped trying to meet all its requirements so that I might live for God. My old self has been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. So I live in this earthly body by trusting in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not treat the grace of God as meaningless, for if keeping the law could make us right with God, then there would be no need for Christ to die. If we could have obeyed the law perfectly, there would be no reason for Christ to die. But Paul says, For when I tried to keep the law, it condemned me. So I died to the law. When a person is convicted of a capital crime and executed, the law has no further claim on that man's life. And so it is with the Christian who has died in Christ, who is Christ who has paid the penalty for their sins in full and raises to new life in Him. Justice has been satisfied and He is forever free from any further penalty. Martin Luther, the father of the Protestant Reformation, you could say revolution, um, he said this about this, uh, this verse of Paul, especially verse 19, about he, him dying to the law. Luther said this, Mr. Law, he's speaking to the law. Mr. Law, go ahead and accuse me as much as you like. I know I have committed many sins and I continue to sin, but that does not bother me. You have got to shout louder, Mr. Law. I'm deaf, you know. Talk as much as you like. I'm dead to you. But if you want to talk to me about my sins, go and talk to my flesh. Belabor that, but don't talk to my conscience. My conscience is a lady and a queen and has nothing to do with the likes of you because my conscience lives to Christ under another law, a new and better one, the law of grace. Hmm. So good. And then Paul says, man, this law can't bring, make me right with God, so I die, with, die to it. And then he declares this powerful statement. Galatians 2, 20. He says, I've been crucified with Christ. What does that mean? Does that mean that, that he literally was crucified with Christ? Kind of like, I mean, I, Paul is saying, I was crucified with Christ. Meaning that once Paul realized that all of his old life, all of the baggage of sin and bondage and enslavement to the spiritual powers, once he came to know Christ, it was like as if he laid his whole life up on this cross to say, man, Jesus took my place. I want to exchange his life for my life. My life that's going to die for his life that always lives. Paul is saying, man, I've been crucified with Christ. I brought my whole life before him to the cross. And I've been crucified with him. Then he says, it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Meaning that at that time where I came to know Christ, I died. And he came and resided inside of me so that as I live, he is the one living through me. Paul goes on and says, The life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, not in my own effort, not in my own desire for happiness or pleasure or comfort. I live my life by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. Man, He was the one who set me free from the life of bondage and enslavement to the powers of this world. Paul is saying with these amazing words, these amazing words contain the finest, clearest statement in a single sentence. 
anywhere to be found of how the Christian life is really to be lived. If you want Christ's life, it's being crucified with Him so that you can actually now live in His life. When Wesleyan Methodist missionary James Calvert went to the cannibals of the Fiji Islands in 1838. Okay, all right, Fiji Island, 1838. Here's this dude. All right, story set up. Praise the Lord, all right? But um, the captain of the ship, ship brought to, or sought to turn back, turn him back, crying out, you will lose your life and the lives of those with you if you go among such savages. Calvert replied, we died before we came here. In short, James Calvert had appropriated and put into practice the truth of what Paul's saying here. He had relinquished his life, having died to James Calvert, to the world, to the flesh, to the devil. He left it all behind in Christ so that he would be free to live for Christ. There's this poem... But I saw it. it says, when Jesus died upon the cross, he took our sin and shame. He offers us his righteousness, a gift for us to claim. Man, Galatians 2.22 or 2.20 is such a powerful verse. I'd encourage you to memorize this verse and just chew the cut on it during the week. It's rich. It's deep. And it... I'm, I'm, able, I'm not able to do this verse justice. What the Holy Spirit can do with this verse in your heart, meditating on it, it's powerful. But I just want to reread it again, slowly, and then we'll pray. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you so much for your word today. Thank you for the life of Paul. Thank you for his conviction and his courage to speak up over, God, maybe to us it seems like small things, but God, it is not. Father, I thank you for the courage and discernment of Paul as you were establishing your church, as you were in this, in this young moment of the church. God, you got things right. God, you gave Paul the courage to speak up against these Judaizers. God, we thank you for the grace that you've given Paul, and God, the same grace you give us. Father, I pray that we wouldn't succumb to second-classing anybody. God, that we would be uh, lovers of people and see people as you see them, Father. God, I pray that, Lord, in this moment, God, if there's anything that we have left off the cross... God, that we've kept back for ourselves. God, I gave you kind of 80% of my life, but man, it seems to be working out that I've held on to about 10 or 20% of that. God, if there's any of us here in that room where we know, God, our lives isn't, aren't fully crucified unto you, God, I pray that right now, Lord, that there would be a moment tonight, today, right now, God, for us to just hand you our whole life. God, that we would declare that we are crucified with Christ. It is no longer us who live. But God, it's you, through your Holy Spirit, living through us to be your light in darkness, 
God, to be your agents out of the world, to be an ambassadors of a better kingdom. Father, we thank you, God, for the work that you've done in our heart. God, continue to grow us and mature us. But Father, if, there's, if, if there was us here that just said, God, I give you my whole life. God, I may have given you 80 or 90, but God, today I give you my whole life. God, for those here that just say, God, take my whole life. I just want to pray for you. Lord God, I just surrender everything to you. God, I surrender my ways. I surrender my habits. I surrender my ways of thinking. God, I give everything to you without pulling anything back, without holding on to anything. And God, I pray that right now your Holy Spirit would come and reside in me. That right now, God, that you would partner with, uh, Lord, our hearts, our, us being sinners. And God, we don't deserve to be, be one with you. But God, I pray that right now that, you would, that we could be just one with you. Father, that we would be synced up with you. That God, as we leave this place, God, that, uh, God, that we would keep step with the Holy Spirit. God, that we would be uh, hearing your voice. And God, being guided by your word and by your spirit. Father, pray that, Lord, you'd help us know this word more than anything else. God, let us not be like the Judaizers who uh, depended on the rabbis to do their thinking for them. Father, that's not us. Father, I pray that you would raise up and train critical thinkers that are leaders in this next generation. And God, may this place be a place that can raise up those thinkers. Lord God, we thank you so much for what you're doing in our lives and what you're doing in this community. Lord, we love you. In Jesus' name, amen. He's calling. <laughs> amen. Well, we hope this message has inspired you and challenged you to be the man or woman he's called you to be now and to see his kingdom grow in every area and arena of life. God is with you more than you know. For more information about our community here in Kansas City, please visit us online at citylifekc.org and we'll see you next time on the City Life Podcast.